John 17, I'm so thankful to be able to stand before you and preach the word and thankful for Jason last week uh, uh, preaching a very good message to us, uh, to you. And In John 17, we continue this study of uh, this prayer that I'm calling the greatest prayer ever prayed um, from, the, from the mouth of Christ and um, entitling this message today, Jesus Prays for His Own. And kind of thinking about, as we introduce it, the idea of Christ knowing that he is about to leave his disciples. And I was trying to think of how to illustrate that. And I know one way might be for some of you uh, who have had kids who grow up and, and move out of your home. Um, that might can be a stressful time. And I've not yet experienced that, although I will be soon. Um, I can imagine the feeling of, did I prepare them to move out? Are they prepared to go into the world and, and live and, and, and do all the things they need to do and take care of themselves? Um, or are they going to have to come back home and me take care of them again? <laughs> so we'll see. But Jesus, in this case, is about to leave his disciples, and there's no question, no question, he has adequately, adequately prepared them for the work he is sending them to do, right? For three years, he has taught them everything he's wanted to teach them, and so now, in these last moments, notice he, he kind of stops for a moment, if you will, the teaching process, although this prayer is still teaching, and he uh, bows and prays for his disciples. And how important it is to read the prayer of Christ, not only for these men, but for us. And if you remember two weeks ago, in the first five verses, Jesus had prayed for himself. He had said, Father... Glorify me that I might glorify you. And now in verses 6 through 19, he's going to pray specifically for his disciples. And I do think these same principles also apply to us as well. Find verse 6 of John 17. And if you're there, let me know by saying word. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are mine, they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I, was sit, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, 
even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. I really have one main point for the sermon today, although there will be some other minor points to write down. But if you're taking notes, I'll write down this one main point as we talk about Jesus praying for his disciples. And that main point is this. Jesus does things for believers that he does not do for unbelievers. And specifically here, notice the example is that he prays for them. So let's walk through these verses, pulling out some principles that apply to these disciples and also to us. The first thing I want you to go back and look at is verse 6. And in verse 6 he says to the Father as he prays, I have manifested or made known your name to these disciples that you've given me out of the world. They were yours, Father, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. There's so much in that one verse, but a couple of things I want you to notice here. Notice that Christ revealed the Father through, to his disciples. Through his living, through his interactions, through his teaching, Christ revealed the character of God, the, the character of the Father, who he is to his disciples. If they were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what is the Father like? What is God like? He could say to them, listen to me, watch me, and you will see the Father. You will know what God is like by watching me and listening to me. And notice here that not only did he reveal himself or the Father to the disciples, he especially revealed the Father to his disciples. I was thinking about this as we read the stories, of, and some of us are reading through a daily Bible reading right now and going through the Gospels, and we read about Christ and all these different times Christ met with people and, and people would come up to him to speak to him. And certainly many people, certainly more than 12 people, were able to spend time with Christ. And certainly he revealed himself to others. But there is a, a deeper way that he showed himself to these disciples, spending time with them, showing them so many truths that I think other people certainly do not get to see. There's a closeness these disciples had with Christ. And I pray that we as disciples, we as followers of Christ, would experience the closeness that God desires with us. It's an inter interesting thing to me in verse 6 when he says, Father, these were yours and you gave them to me. We know that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one, the Trinity, it's this mysterious thing of the Father giving his people to the Son. And the last part of verse 6, he says, they have kept your word. Now listen, does this mean the disciples perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments? Definitely not, right? I mean, how many of us can do that? None of us. We fall short of those commandments daily. This does not mean they were perfect at obeying even the words of Christ, but it means as 
that means they've received the truth from Christ and have believed it. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 he says, Now, now they know that everything that you have given me is, is from you. We've talked about this time and time again in the last couple of chapters, but Jesus' time is drawing near. His hour is near, the hour of his death and his resurrection, which will certainly serve as the pinnacle of here's Christ, here's, here's the Savior as he dies and, and, and rises again. But notice what he says in 7, or back to 6, excuse me. The people whom you gave me were yours, and you gave them to me. I want to point something out to you. We know the Bible says uh, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Jason pointed out today that the scripture says our faith is a gift from God. But I want to to notice something that I had not really thought about until I studied this the other day, is that we often think about Christ as God's gift to us, but how often do we think about us as God's gift to Christ? That's what it says. We've read that multiple times that the Father gave us as believers to the Son. And so think about how Jesus was willing to come to earth, put on flesh, suffer and die, and he did that to pay a price for a people. His reward, his gift is us. And he longs for that gift, to have a people, a bride, a body that he gave his life for. By the way, I love that. I love thinking about um, this text here when it comes to the church. We are the children of God, aren't we? Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, children of the Most High God. We are the bride of Christ. He laid down his life for his bride. He loves his bride. We are the body of Christ. He is the head of the church. We are the body. Whatever metaphor you want to use, we are the church, the, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Whatever metaphor you want to use from scripture, they're all good. They all fit. But I'm reminded of, of this. The bottom line of all those metaphors are this. We are his. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we should glorify God. It should mean something to us, church, as it did for these disciples in the, in the book of Acts as they stuck together to serve him. It should mean something to us to stick together to serve the Lord. Pray we would do that. Look at verse 8. He says in verse 8, For I have given them the words which thou gavest me. Let me just stop there. Jesus was given a commission from the Father, just as we're given a commission from Christ. And did Jesus um, go around making up his own rules, his own words? Did Jesus bring something different? Look what it says. Father, I've given them the words which you've given me. Christ spoke the words the Father had given. He spoke the, the truth of God's word. Then it says in that same verse, verse 8, they know the truth and they have believed that you sent me. Something here I wanted to bring out to us. I think I put this up there for you to see, but notice in verse 6, we see salvation from God's point of view. We see in verse 6, the men you've given me out of the world that the Father elected those who would be saved. That's God's point of view for for salvation, if you will. And in verse 8, we see humanity's point of view, which is they have believed that you sent me. Somehow these two things work together, don't they? The sovereignty of God and the faith of man works together according to his plan 
I see those there in verse 6 and verse 8. So I've told you at the beginning of this sermon that Jesus does things for believers that he does not do for unbelievers. And I think if we were to say that in some context, people would push back and say, that's not fair. That's not fair. Jesus does certain things for believers and not for unbelievers. Doesn't Jesus love everyone? I think that's the pushback we would get if we make this point in some certain context. Well, look it with me at verse 9 of the text. Isn't it great when we can just read the word and tell people, don't argue with me, argue with the word, right? I pray for them, he said, them being the disciples. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. I read several commentaries on this, and I read, I actually Googled a few sermons on this for a purpose, because I wanted to see how certain people would uh, interpret this verse and, and try to, in my opinion, water it down, and they're pretty good at it. People are pretty good at trying to make this say something that I don't think it says. But to me, it's so plain, it's so clear what he's saying here. Jesus prays for his. Let me say this. There's a sense in which God loves the world. We know that. We see scripture that says things like that. God loves the world. He, he created this world. He created every human being. He created us in his image. There is a sense in which God blesses the entire world. God gives or expresses some type of general love through common grace, which means even unbelievers are allowed this morning to wake up, to breathe air, to be provided food. Let's be honest, many unbelievers have many blessings of the world, right? God allows them that grace. Even the wicked, God allows common grace to them. But let this verse stand as a reminder that God loves his people in an even greater way. Not just in a common way, but in a special way. By his good pleasure and by his perfect will, God pours out his special, sovereign, saving grace on all those who are his. On all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, Christ, God, pours out a special saving grace on them. He set his love. Christ paid the debt for those. The Holy Spirit regenerates those. And it's those who are kept by the Father's love. And anybody that has trouble with this verse, and I've, I told you all this illustration recently, but um, I know this is true, right? We can love each other in this room, but we're going to love our family more, right? Like, I love you guys, love you, pray for you, want the best for you, but I love my wife more, right? Love my children more, and you're the same way. I hope you are. That, that's how it is. And so, the same, in the same way, God has a general love for all people, but he loves his people more. Christ laid down his life for his sheep, for his people. I'm going to give you a J.C. Ryle quote now about this to sum it up. Ryle said, it is true that Christ loves all sinners and invites all sinners to be saved. But it is also true that he especially loves the blessed company of faithful people whom he sanctifies and glorifies. It is true that he has wrought out a redemption 
sufficient for all mankind and offers it freely to all. But it is also true that his redemption is effectual only to those who believe. Hence it is written, I pray for them, not for the world. And one reason this verse is so very important, and all these verses in this, in this context, is to show us that Christ keeps his people. We're going to see it in, in, as we kind of go through a few of these other verses as well, that Christ desires for the Father to keep these disciples, that they might remain in, in him. And knowing that Christ prays for his people is such an encouragement, even for us. Do you know the Bible says in Hebrews 7 that Christ is able to save them to the uttermost who come to God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Even now, Christ prays for you, for me. When Aiden was probably a year old, maybe a little more than a year, um, Jesse had, had, was working a, a job then, and, and she kind of needed to go back to work and, and do some work. And so she had um, left to go to her job, and that day I had to, I had to keep Aiden. And so we, we woke up early because he's, you know, he's waking up early, ready to go. And so we're just playing or whatever we're doing in there in the, in the living room. And um, I don't know, a couple hours into it, I was just beat. I mean, I was still a new parent, and I had not had many days without her there, and she did all the work. And, and so I remember getting my, in the recliner and leaning back. I'm like, he's fine. He'll be all right. And the next thing I know, I was out, right? I was asleep. And so I woke up at some time later. I don't know how long I slept. I woke up. I looked around, living room, destroyed. I mean, stuff everywhere. And he was like just over a year old. And I was like, what just happened, you know? I learned my lesson. Don't leave a kid alone. Just destroyed it. I called Jesse. I was like, this kid, what's, what's he doing, you know? Here's my point. Our Savior, Christ, doesn't fall asleep. He doesn't slumber while we make a mess. He is always awake, alert, and at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. We can know we are kept by God. We can know we will never perish because Christ prays for us. Like this morning, if you're worried about your soul or you're worried about something, you can lean back on the truth that Christ prays for us. He prayed for them. He prays for us. And though our prayers might be weak often, I feel like mine are often weak, the prayers of Christ are not weak. They're effectual. They're strong. They're perfect. They're from Christ. Verse 10 and 11. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 11 and now I'm no more in the world, although we know Christ was still there, but he's saying, I'm about to leave. But these disciples are in the world. I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. So Christ, we know here, is going to be leaving. He prays for his disciples that the Father would keep them. And then I'm going to give you four things he prays for here. Four things he prays for the disciples. If you're taking notes, I would jot these down. Number one, he prays for their perseverance. He prays for them to be kept or to persevere. I like what Spurgeon said about this verse. He says, you have been redeemed 
but you still must be kept. You have been regenerated, but you must be kept. You are pure in heart and mind, but you must be kept. And how are we kept? What's he say in verse 11? He says there, Father, keep them through a holy angel. Is that what it says? Father, keep them through a faithful pastor. Father, keep them through a good church. Father, keep them through their own effort. Is that what it says? Keep them through your name. The work of keeping a believer is so significant that only the name of God, the authority of God, the character of God can keep us. And so we have a doctrine called perseverance of the saints, which says the Bible teaches us that all those who are born again will continue trusting in Christ forever. We believe that. Once you're truly saved, you're always saved. And God, by his own power, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, keeps or preserves the believer forever. R.C. Sproul tells an illustration that I, that I enjoyed reading. and He said, imagine a father walking beside a railroad track with a three-year-old son. And the father takes the son by the hand. Why? Because there could be danger, right, if a train were to come through. And he said in this illustration, it's not the, it's not the child's strength, not the child's grip that keeps him safe, but rather it's the father's grip that keeps the child safe. And so as we walk through this life, and danger seems to be sometimes around us, like that child on the track, it's not our grip on the, on the Father that keeps us, is it? It's His grip on us. And the Scripture says no one can take us out of the Father's hand. He prays for these disciples to persevere. And, hey, let's face it, they went through a lot of stuff, didn't they? In the next couple of years, perse uh, uh, persecution, even death, so much they went through. Jesus says, Father, keep them. The second thing he prays for is, is their unity. We, we saw this in the verse as well. He says, Father, help them to be one even as we are one. And so he prays for uh, their, their unity. And the, the pattern is the unity of the Trinity, of Father and the Son here, which obviously we can never be that type of unif unified. But there's still this idea of a genuine Christian unity that we need as believers. And I find this so interesting that in a church, for example, we're all different. We have different backgrounds. We have different upbringings. We have different levels of life experience and different things, gains, losses, desires. We have different preferences. But we can still come together united around Christ and the purpose of the church and serve him together. Isn't that good that we can do that? We don't all have to be just alike, right? We don't all have to dress alike. We don't all have to like all the same things. But we love Christ. We love his church. We love his word. We love what he's called us to do. You see, the type of unity Jesus prays for here is unity of spirit, unity of heart, and unity of purpose. And that's the type of unity I pray for us as well. I've told you all so many stories over the years, but I was thinking about 
uh, one church where I served at, and I was the associate pastor, and it was a, the largest church I ever served at, and so there would be, you know, 300 people there on Sunday mornings, pretty decent-sized church, and there was a season of time in that church where every day it felt like all the pastors were doing was going around putting out fires. Every day for a season, it was like people called the church office, this person's got this complaint, this person's got this issue, this person's got this going on. And I remember telling the pastor, I feel like we can't even do the ministry we're called to do because we're having to put out, what, in my opinion, silly fires amongst bickering church members, basically. And thinking back through those times, how I can look back now and clearly see God was not honored through that time, through that church. I mean, things got better eventually, but God is not honored when a church is bickering at one another, right? He's not honored, and not only is he not honored, but the church doesn't shine as a light in the world. I mean, how many of us have heard this before? I've heard this so many times over the years. You, you talk to somebody, invite them to church, or invite them, you know, and they say, well, church, I went to church and the Christians burned me, or they were mean to me, they hurt me, right? That, that church hurt me. And that's, that's happened, right? It shouldn't be an excuse. They should still find a church to plug into, but that's happened. So maybe we consider being unified in Christ, and Christ prayed for this, to be unified in our fellowship and in our witness. I read another story related to this years ago. And true story about a man who was, a, uh, he was in prison, he was a gang member, a legit gang member. He got out of prison, came to know Christ, and joined his local church. As, after he joined the church, he got really involved. He was always there at all the meetings, all the services. Um, he was a little different than some of the other members, right, being a former gang member. But he was there, faithful. Well, after about a year, this man kind of faded away, stopped attending. And one of the elders of the church uh, saw him and said, hey, Man, I, I realize you haven't been around. What's, what's going on with you? And here's what this former gang member said. He said, I had the wrong idea when I joined the church. He said, I thought it would be like family. He said, you see, when I was in gangs, we hung out together. We always had each other's backs, and we took care of each other. We didn't just focus on two meetings a week. And when I got here, it was like it was each person for himself. There was just no reason for me to be here with these people and it said the pastor said it's really broke his heart that a gang was a better example of a family than the church and again I challenge us to think about this Christ knew these disciples needed to be unified to accomplish his purposes and church we also need to be unified to accomplish his purposes verse 12 verse 12 he says while I was with them in the world I kept them in thy name those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Christ kept them, and now he's saying, I'm leaving, Father, Father, keep them, guard them. Um, Judas, of course, was lost, and that was to fulfill scripture. That word perdition there means perishing or destruction, the son of destruction. We know that that was a part of the ultimate plan of God, the sovereign plan of God for Judas. And Christ did not lose Judas. Judas lost Judas by choosing to go against Christ. Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
Here's the third thing he prayed for. Number one, perseverance. Number two, unity. Number three, he prayed, prays for their joy. Have you heard joy described like this? Um, happiness depends on our happenings, our circumstances, and joy does not. I've heard it described like that. And I think that's a pretty good definition because Christian joy means that even when things aren't going my way, even when I'm struggling, I still have this contentment and this happiness in Christ. And Christian joy is, is something that's deeper. It's that one of those fruit of the Spirit that, that cannot be taken away from us. It might waver at times, right? We pray for Christ to restore the joy of our salvation and, and give us joy. But it's a matter of being content in who God is and that He is sovereign over all our happenings. And these disciples and what they're about to go through, they need to know deep down, right, that Christ is in control. They need that joy. D.A. Carson said, The disciples' joy will be greater as they remember that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, prayed for them. Let the prayer of Christ for his people give us joy this morning. Well, let's look at 14 through 16. In 14 through 16, he says, I have given them thy word. Jesus gave his disciples the word from God. And church, we should imitate that. We do not come out here and say, let me give you a new word this morning. <laughs> right? Let me give you a better word this morning. No. If some preacher says, I have a new word for you or a better word for you, I would run away from that preacher. There's no new word, is there? There's no better word. There's the word, right? The word. Christ gave the word from God. We should imitate that as well. These, these verses, as you look at verses 15 and 16, they show us why this prayer was needed. Because these disciples are going to stay in the world. They're going to be hated by Satan. They're going to be hated by their adversaries. And Jesus, again, not worried for them, but certainly knowing what their road is going to have for them, he prayed for them. Again, just a side point here. Let's pray for each other. We have prayer meeting every Sunday morning at 945, and we pray for the church and for each other. And At home, whenever you bow to pray, whenever you think, as often as you think about it, let's pray for one another. Jesus said here, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Do you see that, that phrase? I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you just keep them. To me, this is a kind of a slap in the face to some modern-day people who would say, Christians should just all get in a holy huddle and never go out into the world uh, or like go to a monastery and just sit there and be holy. Um, I remember years ago taking teenagers to youth camp and having an awesome week of youth camp and because you're reading the Bible all day, you're praying all day, you're doing ministry projects, and it was a great time. I, I enjoyed it. You, get away, you do get away from the, the, basic, the regular struggles of life and you kind of get secluded with Christians and you pray and you read and study and talk. And it is good. And I remember time and time again at these camps, a teenager would come to me and say, can we just stay here all the time? Like, why can't we just do this all year? Why can't this just be our home? And I was thinking, I think you're talking about a cult at this point. But, but I get what they were saying. It was, it, a lot of, oftentimes it was a good experience, just unplugging from the world for a week. But that's not what God's called us to do, is it? 
Like our unplugging from the world, by the way, is this hour we're here. But when we leave here, guess what? We're going back into the world. Now, we're not of the world, but we're in the world. And that's the purpose. The purpose is that we gather here so that we may then go out there, being the light of Christ. The purpose is that we would come together to, to be edified and leave to spread the word of Christ. Someone said, our goal is to be in the world, but not of it, even as a ship is to be in the ocean, but not allowing the ocean to be in the ship. And so we don't want the world to influence us. We want to be a positive influence on the world. Verse 17. As we move here to near our conclusion here, but in verse 17, it says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Your word is truth. This brings us to our fourth and final thing that Jesus prays for them, and it's for their sanctification. Jesus says here, Father, make them holy, make them devoted, make them set apart, and do so through your word. Do so through truth. We live in a world of relativism where people say, what's true for me it may not be true for you, right? And what's true for you may not be true for me. And, and I hate this saying. Have you heard this before? Somebody will say, well, that's my truth. Or that's his truth or her truth. That's such an annoying thing when I hear people say that. There's either truth or not. <laughs> There's not her truth, his truth, my truth. No. There's truth, and God's word is true. I know Jason, I know this is Jason's favorite verse in all the Bible. Uh, I asked him if he'd like to preach a whole sermon on it. I think we're going to do that. Uh, let him preach a whole sermon on it. He loves this verse, and it's a great verse. I know I see why you like it so much. Um, it's a distorted view to say his truth, her truth, my truth. It's a right view to say thy word is truth. That's the right view. This is why we preach the Bible. This is why we read Scripture together. This is why we read our confession of faith and, and recite the Apostles' Creed. This is why we encourage daily Bible reading. This is why Wednesday nights we study the word together because the more truth we believe, the more sanctified we will become. The more truth we believe, the more sanctified we will become. Verse 18 and 19, the last two verses. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also might be sanctified in truth. Jesus, as Spurgeon said, was the great missionary, and we are the minor missionaries. He was sent to accomplish the Father's will and purpose, and in turn sends us to accomplish the Father's will and purpose. Jesus prayed for these disciples, knowing they were going through, very shortly go through a very difficult life. And he prays for us as well. Conclusion. Three questions to ask ourselves this morning related to this text, and it's also related to our discipleship pathway. The first one is this, am I saved? Have I turned to Christ? Have I repented of my sin, believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life? This is the first step in our discipleship pathway. Do you know Christ? Do you know him? If you don't know him, if you've never put your faith in him, 
then none of this other stuff matters until you put your faith in him. The second thing is, am I being sanctified? I believe it's clearly scriptural that all those he saves, he begins to sanctify. To make us more like Christ and less like the world. Our discipleship pathway says to be a regular part of the congregation, to join the congregation, to invest in your church by being there to learn and grow with your church family. All that is related to, am I being sanctified? And then finally, am I living a sent life? And in our discipleship pathway, we say it like this, am I influencing my crowd for Christ? The people in my home, my family, my friends, others I come in contact with, are my words, attitudes, and actions leading them closer to Christ? Am I living a sent life? We're going to see as we conclude John 17 that Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And in the next few verses, even though this is 2,000 years ago, he prays for us. I'd encourage you to go read that chapter and, and be ready for that soon. Let's pray.